Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. listening to you on it was that the american cinematographer podcast mm-hmm. yeah that asc thing was great and ian's lovely i'm hoping we can do something else for um the next trader film the card counter is that the one with is it oscar isaac that's in it that's the oscar isaac one yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. is that next year that's coming that's done yeah that's coming out that'll be out on se- september 10th or around september 10th in uh, in the u.s i don't know we'll see the uk um oh it's a little bit later yeah maybe yeah so did you shoot that pre-covid we shot that pre and during covid um we started in march of 2020 is that right? No, 2021. Sorry. We started in March of 2021 and then uh, got three weeks in and then got shut down and then returned for a sort of week and a half, two weeks uh, in August of 2021. Oh, no, that would have been 2020. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah you're yeah. right the first time. Yeah, 2020. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. Was it quite yeah, a different exactly. atmosphere on set for each half of that? Oh, yeah. It was, it was completely different. I mean, you know, I think we all. Paul had this apparition sort of early in the process. We were shooting in Biloxi, Mississippi, and uh, he had this apparition early in the process. Was saying, "I don't think I'm going to get to finish this film." And I was like, "What are you crazy? It's like this COVID thing is far away." But you know, little did we know it was already here, and it was already going to pretty much transform the way uh, the film industry functions. Yeah, it was it was significantly different. Also significant because I had to replace the majority of my crew. Um, to come and, and, and finish the movie um, because most of the people came from New York and the sort of travel down there was kind of quite impossible or, or full of many hoops to jump through, you know, ended up driving actually. If you ever, you know, need a really long road trip, go from New York to Mississippi. <laughs> How did you find that then? Because I imagine 
when you start a shit, there's maybe one or two days where you're kind of getting into the swing of things. Does that almost happen again once you have that new crew on board? Yeah, I mean, it's very true. Um, the hardest thing, I mean, one of the hardest things aside from, you know, the sort of impending doom of COVID and, and all that was the idea as we were leaving that, you know, I knew every single shot of that movie and that there was an, uh, sort of a very real possibility that uh, I wouldn't get to complete it or it would not be completed because uh, in those early COVID days, I mean, certainly we were just thinking, is there going to be a film industry? Are people going to be able to be able to gather and make work together? Or is the future of this world completely remote? And how would that function for someone like me whose, whose life is, is making things with a group of people on a set? Were you thinking that like long term a few years or were you thinking that forever i don't know i mean you know you just didn't know you know i mean it got especially here in new york it got so bad here you know we had so many deaths and you know refrigerator trucks full of bodies and you know all that um a lot of people lost loved ones you know myself included and and um you just didn't know what was going to happen you know didn't seem like there was a so many rays of lights in uh, out of this darkness, you know, in, in uh, you know, April and May and June of 2020. Yeah, I mean, if you were shooting the car counter in March, did you almost travel back to New York as you were like going into the epicenter of? Yeah, completely. I mean, I, I remember stopping at different uh, supermarkets in like Virginia and loading up on food because uh, my girlfriend was texting me and saying, "Oh, hey." Um, there's there's no this or there's no that or that's all off the shelves or there's no bread or you know whatever it may be i mean it got really really bad here and and um, we just didn't know you know at that point we didn't know was it airborne uh how did you get it we just knew it was bad and panic um, yeah just panic panic everywhere you know after you start stop thinking about you and your family's safety you start to think about the things that define you and certainly work is something that defines a lot of people and defines me and uh, starting to think about what, um, what would happen with that, you know, did I need to find a new profession? <laughs> you know, I don't know what I would do, but uh, you know, definitely had to think about it. <laughs> how, how much of your self-worth do you think comes from your work? Um, I think a pretty significant part uh, for people in the creative industry of their self-worth worth comes from what they do and feeling good at what you do. I think it's, it's very hard when it's you know, bound up. Your creative endeavors is bound up with your financial gain. You know, and uh, the losses feel more substantial and the wins feel great. You know? I've got lots of friends that just have you know, jobs they go to and, and they love the outdoors and that's their passion. And, you know, that job so they can have money to take off time to go and hike or do whatever it is they that that really fulfills them my uh creative passion and my work and my hobby are all bound up in one thing makes for a, a bit more of a stressful life but you know i kind of signed up for that you know <laughs> getting into the film industry but yeah you just you know i think over time hopefully you find coping mechanisms. What exactly would those coping mechanisms be? Uh, I think um, it's more just mental to feel as though a rejection is not a rejection of your self-worth, but just a rejection of, you know, 
that wasn't that wasn't right for for you weren't right for that project you know yeah there's a million different reasons why that could be yeah exactly but uh, i think i think these ups and downs affect anyone in the creative industries are you is there anywhere in your life that you're able to be creative without those kind of hang-ups uh what do you mean like that kind of pressure of it all being wrapped up in the financial thing are you able to just still go out with a camera and kind of have that be a free space for you yeah i mean i just i just find it in other things you know it doesn't it doesn't need to be like related for, for me it's actually better if it's not related to my cinematography work i still get a lot of joy through my cinematography work and a lot of self-fulfillment or fulfillment i should say so i, I don't find that I'm necessarily needing that outlet that's related to cinematography, whether it be photography or whatever it may be. Um, I just like, you know, going for a run or um, I really enjoy surfing, going for a surf, you know, all these things sort of like free my mind and free me in a lot of ways. Do you go up to Long Island? Is that where you surf in New York? Um, yeah, we, we have Long Island, we have Rockaway, we have New Jersey. It's not the best surf, but it's fun to get in the water. It's funny because you don't think of New York being a coastal town, but it's kind of right on the edge. Yeah, you know, I think uh, uh, many people don't think that. Many people think, oh, oh, you have waves in New York? But yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, are, on, uh, we are on the Atlantic Ocean, <laughs> you know. Um, New York probably is the least kind to its waterways. I mean, we, uh, we, we, we build highways along the ocean instead of, you know, giving it a place for people to live. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's not what we're known for. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's just, it's just good getting into nature, whatever that may be, and, and sort of clearing the mind. Can you do that if you're shooting a film in a kind of natural space? Do you notice a difference in atmosphere compared to being inside a room when you're shooting a film? Uh, I don't think so. Not really. I mean, you know, ultimately, work, when you're at work, it's work, right? Even if it's the best scenario possible. You're still, you still have a level of professionalism. You still have some things that you want to accomplish, a goal as a team. So I think it's, it's hard to separate that. You know? um, I've had great jobs, um, amazing jobs, commercials and movies and all that sort of stuff. But it's ultimately still work. It's still kind of in a different category in your brain than you know, going and spending a day you know, hiking through a beautiful forest. You're on a very tight schedule as well. Yeah. I mean, the reality of that is always, you know, it's always a ticking clock on everything. Part of the pride that I think a lot of people take in their work and that I take in my work is, is in making my days, you know, is in, is in finding, uh, figuring out the rubric successfully, you know. We mentioned, or we kind of touched upon, we started off with the card counter a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's the third time you've worked with Schrader? That is, yeah. Third, yeah. Do you do you develop a shorthand working with a director on multiple occasions? How does communicating kind of differ? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's. I think this is true of 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 any professional relationship or really any relationship. You know, it could be a friend. You know, you just develop a knowledge of we do that, we don't do that. You know, we go to the park on Sundays or we don't go to the park on Sundays. You know. Um, and I, I think that's, uh, even more true when, you know, it's the relationship between a director and a DP, especially because I think that doggy dog, we were trying a lot of different things out. You know, I think that's a movie of a lot of different moods. First reformed was something very different and something that had a much more coherent perspective. And so 
based on that, then, you know, you have this shorthand of, of two things that you can point to and you can say, oh, well, you know, this movie, we did that on that movie, we did this, which kind of movie is this? And so um, it makes what can often be a very short prep time um, be okay, because you're not starting language from zero, you're starting language from you know, 20 or 30, you've seen a lot of the same movies, you like a lot of the same stuff, you know, so all that helps. You shot, you did Dog Eat Dog and then First Reformed, right? Yeah, Dog Eat Dog, then First Reformed, and then The Card Counter. It's funny because what you're saying there about, you know, Dog Eat Dog, you're kind of experimenting a lot and First Reformed was quite locked in place. You would almost imagine them being the other way around. Like the first time collaborating, it would make sense to have it be the one that's kind of quite tied down. And yeah. the second time, you kind of get a bit more loosey-goosey. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Um, I think it all is based on story, though. You know, Dog Eat Dog is a pitch black comedy. Well, that's what Paul thinks. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, sort of gonzo in its, in its story and its structure and the characters that are in it. And First Reformed is very meditative, um, focused film with, you know, some, some more sort of uh, ethereal elements. But, um, but generally speaking, the mood is, is very somber. Doggy Dog, you were kind of finding the tone a little bit on set, right? Or it was developing on set? Yeah, definitely. How does that impact you as a cinematographer? Does your idea of what you want to do with it change a little bit as a result of that? Of course. I mean, you know, I think there are, there, there are lots of ways to approach movie making. And I think in those two films, you have the sort of polar opposites of, of how you approach movie making. One is you have these great actors, you sort of rehearse it and see what they want to do. And then, you know, you, um, you respond not on the fly because you have a general idea beforehand of what's going to happen, but you know, you sort of do respond on the fly and you say, okay, well you need this shot. You need this reverse. You need this, you know, and you think on your feet and first reformed, you know, every shot of that movie is planned out. Every shot has been storyboarded, not storyboarded, but um, you know, shot listed in some manner. And so, you know, that's an instance of saying to an actor, as, as Paul would say, well, you're going to start here and then you're going to go there. And then this is the edge of the frame. And, you know, but, uh, you know, those are decisions that, that you make when you don't move the camera or you make the, move the camera very few times. So I think you have sort of two examples of, of you know, different styles of, of movie making and, and none is, neither is better. Uh, they're just different because they reflect the stories and the script. When it comes to first reform being so meticulously planned as well, are you still able to find places on set for that spontaneity to kind of occur that was so prevalent in Dog Eat Dog? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I think when you set yourself rules, it's a great joy to break them, you know? And so uh, there are moments in that film where we had planned to have a locked off camera and then Paul would say, well, let's let's move the camera here. And I'd be like, well, Paul, we don't do that. And be like, let's break a rule, you know? And, and I think you have to be open to those things. You have to be open to some of the magic of what you see on set of what can be created. Otherwise, you know, uh, if you're not adapting, um, I think you fail at the whole game of filmmaking. You know, the game of filmmaking is to make something that you're proud of within the time frame that you're proud of, but that, you know, 
uh, fulfills the story. Why? Why would you break a rule? What would motivate you to do that? I don't know. You get to a location, and it just—it's something different than you thought about, and it's better a different way. I think that's 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 when we started to break rules in in first reformed. We had this great bush, like weird bush in front of the house that was sort of ominous in some way, and the sun was setting in a really nice direction. And hey, wouldn't it be nice to track with them from the door of the house to the garage? You know, wouldn't that tell the story in a better way? How quick can you set that up and kind of get it ready to go like that? If the sun's setting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. Uh, you know, you don't do it on every shot. Um, and especially when you're making a small movie, that's, you know, kind of a sprint, um, to get everything in. What was the shoot time on that? Uh, that movie we shot in 23 days. Man, that's tight. Yeah, for sure. Most of Paul's films are under 25 days, or I should say that the three films that I've shot with Paul have been under 25 days. When you either plan meticulously or have great actors, you know, I think you're rewarded. In both ways. When did the industry start to shift to that? Because it's not always been that tight as I mean, I feel like you used to kind of have like 40 day shoots would be the minimum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically with the advent of digital and and with the the fact that the film business has changed so much. And and Paul will talk about this. You know, he's talked about this extensively. But you know, when he started, 35 days uh, uh, was sort of the minimum. And um, you had uh, you had film, which you had to expose, right? And um, it's not as light sensitive as digital cameras, and um, you can only do so much in a day, you know. And as a result, that was that was sort of the model. But you know, now um, so much um, of what we do is dictated by the market and dictated by the fact that you know uh, such and such actor could only sell for so much money. And they're only going to garner so much money and you need this other actor to, you know, add additional money. And, um, when it comes down to it, filmmaking is very expensive. Uh, and the margin of making it to selling it is very thin, you know, as a result, um, industry has really shifted and, um, making a sub $5 million movie in less than 20 days has become much more of the norm than it was, say, 15 or 20 years ago. Where was it when you came into the business? Was that, was that transition already quite far along or was it kind of in the process? Yeah, I mean, I spent my early sort of like my earlier years in anthropology, uh, doing documentary films and um, shooting more commercials. So by the time I started doing narrative projects, we were very solidly within the sort of digital era. I mean, I shot Doggy Dog on a red which was the last time I used a red. I'm sorry, red. Um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, that was, that was, that red was an early, earlier digital camera, but still really great. You know, when you say anthropology films, like documentaries that are character studies or what sort of thing do you mean? I mean, like documentary anthropology, following people who are making things, process based films that, you know, show, uh, how someone goes about doing something. That was sort of my my first my first life and and where I sort of started falling in love with with filmmaking and and um, you know I was sort of jack of all trades did had this little you know Panasonic TV cam you know an audio mic on top of it and you know I was sort of doing it all editing it at night you know just sort of a uh, one man band kind of like a fly on the wall yeah totally yeah not not really interfering not dictating that much. 
just using sort of what's naturally there and and who is naturally there in space. So, you know, watching someone build a rope for a day, you know, or build a ladder or um, dye some indigo, you know, those were all all things that I was interested in recording and interested in, in making films about. Did anything from that age you in first reform though? Because I mean, the whole thing about transcendental filmmaking is kind of, you know, keeping out of the way a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I think transcendental filmmaking is more um, how do you use the camera to allow your audience to lean in and create their own versions of a film in their head. I don't necessarily think it's, it's uh, about non-action. I guess when I say keeping out of the way, I kind of mean keeping out of the way of the audience's... Ah, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I thought you meant like how you know how crafted are these films? How crafted are transcendental films? Well, they, they sometimes feel more crafted than a kind of regular film because there's so much thought that goes into allowing the audience to perceive it in quite an open way. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think you're definitely right on there. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a lot of ways there is a meditative quality to the sort of process films that I started making or that I was interested in making. Was always your intention to come around to narrative at some point? It was my intention as it became my intention. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I was always interested in movies. I always loved movies. But I didn't know that I would make them or be a part of making them until I was well into shooting commercials and finding that while commercials were a lovely way to make a living, I, I wasn't necessarily pushing myself and feeling creatively fulfilled. How long had you been shooting commercials for before you came to that realization? Probably about 10 years. I mean, it was, it was sort of a, a long time coming. It, it had been an opportunity that I'd want to, to do, you know, maybe, so maybe five years in that 10 year process, wanting to do more narrative work. But it wasn't another till another five years past that that I was sort of I got the opportunity. So are you making the anthropological films alongside the commercials, or are they before that? No. So I mean, I I started um, uh, in college um, uh, studying under this incredible guy named Akko Fuster, this Hungarian um, documentary anthropologist who. Um, worked with uh, uh, Robert Gardner uh, in the 70s at Harvard um, doing documentary anthropology work. Um, They made some absolutely beautiful films. And uh, I was really influenced by him. And so when I graduated, I uh, was lucky enough to get a Fulbright grant. And I moved to India, used the grant to basically, you know, buy a camera and get all the sort of things that I needed and, um, and start making documentaries there. Uh, and I lived there, uh, making various different documentaries and, um, a friend of mine from Glasgow, actually, when the grant was over said, Oh, I've got another friend who, um, is really into documentaries too. Will you, will you come and meet him? He wants to make a documentary. I said, yeah, of course. And, and we met and got along and I ended up moving to London as a result of that. And, um, working alongside him. The short story version of that is, is that uh, another friend of a friend asked us to start doing some stuff for Burberry, um, the clothing brand. We stopped doing any documentaries and just did work for Burberry. And, and that sort of became, started my commercial life because I had, I had basically been shooting as this documentarian for the years um, previous to that. 
I, uh, I was, you know, this jack of all trades, I could shoot, I could edit, you know, uh, and, uh, this was around the time that the, the 5d and the 7d became accessible and popular ways to shoot. We just started shooting on those, making little documentaries of like how a scarf is made, you know, uh, in Italy for Burberry or another company. And um, it was incredible training because I got to do everything. I got to shoot and I got to edit my own stuff as I was doing. And, and um, I got to produce and I just learned a lot about how to make films. And, uh, and I found out through that whole process that, hey, I really like just shooting the movies, you know, being in, involved with the camera. And so uh, when I eventually moved back to New York, I had this kind of commercial reel of, of stuff. And, uh, uh, and while I still did some documentary shooting, um, a few days here, a few days there, I did you know, work on various different documentaries. Um, I primarily just kind of dove into doing uh, commercials. It's a very natural progression when you put it that way, how you went from those anthropological films into almost... You, would you call those Burberry videos like anthropological commercials, like kind of looking at how a scarf was made? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, yes. You know, this sort of how-tos element of that was, you know, here I was um, recording how someone in Jaipur, India, dies indigo, and now I'm in Lake Cuomo recording how someone makes a scarf, you know. Obviously, they're, they're different contexts, but uh, the tools are the same, you know. How long were you in London for? I was in London for about five years. So when you went back to shoot after Love, was that the first time you've been back since then? No, I've been back for commercials and that kind of stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd worked there quite a lot. But this was the first time that I'd been back for like a long stretch. And I was sort of staying pretty close to uh, where I lived in Stoke Newington. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was great. It, it really felt like I was coming full circle, you know, um, a completely different person, a completely different DP, rid of, you know, whatever <laughs> the mistakes I had made at that time, you know. Did those changes become more apparent within yourself when you go back to that place? Yeah, sure. I mean, they um, they definitely, yeah, I think when when you're in a place and then you return to it, and you sort of change as a person and your professional life has changed as a person, but say, you know, the street you used to live on is still there. Uh, you can't help but reflecting that time has passed and things have changed and you feel a different way, you know, running around along the canal, you know, um, was just like a weird full circle thing, you know, living, living and going back to, to be in, uh, in, um, in Dalston and, you know, eating at, you know, the Turkish place that uh, I used to go get a soup at, you know, um, all these things, you just can't help but feeling some level of, and some level of nostalgia, but, you know, at the same time, some level of fulfillment for, you know, being, uh, at a completely different point in, in your life, you know? I hope I hope that you know I'll I'll be able to return to London and do another movie you know in in a few years time and and um, have that same go through that same process maybe not as as significant but from zero to a hundred but you know um, have uh, some level of of knowledge that oh it's been four years since I was here last and these shops are still here and yet I, I have changed and I'm a different person, you know? 
like a Richard Linklater film, just checking in with some characters <laughs> every three or four years or whatever. Yeah, except unfortunately, like very few of my friends still live in London. Everyone is like, you know, moved to their country place, you know, or, or moved back to Edinburgh or wherever it may be. Um, everyone is seemingly uh, escaped to say. Uh, escaped escaped the, the grimy city yeah exactly there are only really a few left we were touching upon you know a lot of the commercial work you did there too is there any parallel between that and billions you know where in commercials you have that established brand and in billions you have the established series when you come on to shoot an episode not really yeah commercial commercials are just great little exercises and they're more dependent upon who the director is and what their vision is. Whereas the series is returning to a look that is pre-established. Do you, do you quite enjoy going into a commercial soon after you've done a feature? I do. Yeah. It, it sort of uh, wakes me up from, you know, the sort of mindset I'm in. You know, when I go into a feature, I really get into this sort of like monk-like <laughs> uh, thing where I, I, I really, I won't really watch other movies um, aside from the reference movies that the director and I have been talking about, um, I'm really much more focused, you know, on, on what I'm making. And so to, to go and do a commercial that has a lot of color and, uh, potentially it's just great. It just sort of like, you, you feel like all your, all your creative, uh, ideas are coming back and being sparked. And, you know, I remember when I was on first reformed, a good friend of mine, uh, asked me if I wanted to go see like 2001, you know, a beautiful film print of 2001. And I said, I'd love to, but I I just can't like, I'm, I'm shooting this, you know, one, one, three, three movie, you know, I can't, I can't four, three, you know, aspect ratio. I can't go see something widescreen. Like my brain just can't, can't sort of take that, uh, that change, you know? So um, to come back and do a commercial is just is just great, especially the scope of something like two thousand and one when you compare that to the intimacy of first reformed yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're very different films. I don't know if they are comparable um, you know. How many reference films would you typically watch when you're working on a picture? It depends. I mean, sometimes you go in and someone has a very defined idea of what they want, but you know uh, at least twenty films per movie. So I think, yeah, when you, when you start a movie with someone, especially who you've never worked with before, you know, all you really have as a shared, as shared knowledge is references. And so I think it's really important to start to pull different things and get excited about different things and, and create something that, you know, um, borrows and steals from lots of other things. And then you're on set and you find your own language and, and that sort of all contributes and, and, and creates something new and interesting, hopefully. Or maybe that's not the point. The point is to do something that is very referential or, you know, uh, of a certain project and, and you try to make that your own. And, you know, that's where you go. There was one actually particular shot in First Reformed I wanted to nerd out on a little bit and ask about where <laughs> sure i shot that film in 2017 so you know it's it's uh it's been a minute it was the you know the the shot where he pours i think it's like bleach into the whiskey but halfway through the film and it kind of yeah. starts to just like dissolve was that a reference yes. to godard and uh two or three things no it's a reference to taxi driver actually to when um, De Niro is in the all-night diner and he puts the Pepto-Bismol in the, uh, in the cup. 
I think that's a reference to Godard as well, though. Sorry, apologies, not Pepto Bismol. He puts the alka seltzer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like kind of two ways on. Because I think I think Taxi Driver is a reference to Godard, and then. Oh yeah. And then that oh, that's cool. It's like rhyming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's uh, rhyming via Paul Schrader's mind. How I mean, the thing that I love about First Reformed as well is the way that you play with shadows in that movie and darkness and how that occupies the frame. Yeah. How how do you kind of prepare for that in advance when you know it's so specific to the room and the location itself? Yeah, I mean, you know, I always like to try to do a lighting test before um, start a movie, just so you know. I work very closely um, with the colorist Tim Masick. Tim and I, you know, through the past couple of years, have sort of created a shorthand, and and I like to present the director with an idea of what the film could look like. And so, you know, I'll go in and just in a very basic, you know, camera room, maybe like, for example, on First Reformed, the production designer gave me like a desk and a lamp that she was thinking about using. We sort of put those in a room uh, in the camera checkout uh, place that we do the camera checkout and uh, bring the gaffer in and, and, and the key grip, if, you know, if possible. And, and we'll just do lighting tests for a day. You know, we'll show the references and and start to think about uh, what this film could look like. And out of that, then we go to the color suite and start to think about, um, oh, here's here's an approach this way. Here's an approach that way. Out of that comes some sort of product that you show the director and you say, is this feel right? Is this feel like the movie? And so, you know, as you go into the movie, regardless of what space you enter, you know, hey, I want to have, you know, M90s bouncing off of, you know, ultra bounce coming back through, you know, another rag, whatever I want, books, I want, uh, I want to create book lights, I want to create direct, you know, go directly through, through grids, whatever it may be, you know, you kind of get an understanding of these are my tools and this is how I use them. Uh, and shadow was a really important part of First Reform because when you're shooting digitally, Paul, you know, Paul and I sort of developed this idea that we wanted to have very, we wanted to be able to see a lot in the frame. We were going to have long shots. We wanted a lot to be in focus. And so when you're shooting at such a deep stop, you know, and, and need a lot of things in focus, the idea being that this would allow the audience to look at a bunch of different things and develop their own narrative and not be sort of sort of spoon fed to sort of lean into the to the movie. The focus is in pulling your eyes straight to one thing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and as a result of that, that can feel very flat when you're um, uh, shooting digitally. The sort of obsession I have with shape comes from that, from creating shape on digital uh, and, and being at a, a, um, a very high f-stop. Um, these are all sort of ways that I figured out how to combat it and make an interesting image, regardless of, of the sort of flatness that, that we were attracted to. When you're making a film like that, are you very aware of not going over that line where you're pushing the audience too far in one direction? I think you are and you are. I mean, ultimately, you're telling a story. And there's going to be shots in that story that uh, lead an audience. They have to, right? And there's going to be shots in that, that story that hopefully provide uh, the audience with a, a moment where they can sort of think for themselves. Whether you, the intention is to do so or not, it's sort of 
all gets mixed up in the end. And then with Dog Eat Dog, is that very much you're just kind of, do you, is that more like you're following the action and you're kind of trying to catch up to it? If that would make sense, like, you know, with the energy of that film. I guess, yeah, I guess you could say so. I mean, you know, there's a, there, I think that's a film where, you know, you, you plan as much as you can and then you react. Um, and so I think that, you know, obviously like I knew that I was going to do the opening scene in all pink, you know? Um, but I didn't know that, you know, scene 10 was going to be choreographed in that way, you know? Um, so you kind of have these set pieces and then you kind of fill the things in between it. When you fill the things in, is that something that kind of just happens on set or do you, you prep that out quite thoroughly before? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to respond to what the actors are doing, you know? What kind of, well, like, you know, looking to the reference list of that, if you have a lot of those noir movies on it, what kind of made up the color palette in terms of references? Oof. I don't know, man. I mean, I, I shot that in like 2015. <laughs> Honestly, I, I could look back at movies that we were watching, but yeah, I can tell you. Are you always very much looking forward? Like when we were talking earlier on about, you know, your kind of development into this and your way that you went from anthropology you know, films into commercials and it was such a natural progression. It feels like you kind of just moved from thing to thing quite very much in the present moment. Would that be a fair assessment or? Um, sure. I mean, I, I think that that's also just the nature of, you know, you can only have so many, br- uh, so many images in your brain, you know, um, you can only hold on to so many things like, and be interested in so many things. I've just finished a movie, but then, you know, I've got three commercials coming up and, and each of them is a different approach. And, you know, so much of that repetition that I'm already starting to forget what we did on the movie, you know, um, obviously you remember (laughs) things that you did and say, Oh, I, I remember when I did this and I rigged the camera that way. And, you know, you, you have your, your work professionalism with you. Uh, and, and, and you carry that, but you know, in the, in, in the same breath, um, you can't hold all those things, you know, and I don't find myself rewatching my movies, you know, or movies I've worked on. I guess after a while, the things that are worth sticking around kind of just seep into your toolkit a little bit, do they? Yeah, I think that's a good way. That's a good way of saying it. You know, like I learned I don't want to make another movie shooting on a red. Uh, I learned that um, maybe anamorphic glass is not really something that inspires me as much. These are all sort of lessons from Dog Eat Dog. And, and I put that in my back pocket and, you know, but, but then again, then you come to a certain project and the references are Spielberg and it just makes sense to bring anamorphic glass back. So, you know, uh, I think they're all different types of things uh, and they all go in the back of your brain somewhere. And listen, if I went back to my notes on Dog Eat Dog, I sh- I'm sure I could say, oh, we were watching, you know, uh, this movie and that movie and uh, referencing this noir and that noir. But ultimately, you know, you only have so much space in your brain. <laughs> it's also maybe a reflection of the way the audience view it, where those references aren't as important when someone's just consuming it as a new, you know, piece of art. Yeah, I mean that's the hope. You know, I think I think uh, uh, you know Paul says steal, but steal around. You know, and I think that sort of epitomizes um, the way that uh, um, the way that he makes movies and the way that that in a way like I've been taught to make movies. You know. As long as you steal well. Right. Right. You <laughs> steal when well. You're, when you're stealing badly, you've got a problem. <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, the hope is that you're, you're stealing around, you're stealing interesting things, and, and, and they become something else. 
you know, and the language becomes uh, synonymous in your mind with the story and the script that you've been given. We're all stealing, even if we don't realize it. Yeah, even exactly. we don't think we're stealing, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it was it was all done until you know, basically in 1935. You know, like that. It's all. It, you look back at you know classical Hollywood cinema, and they, they did they did it all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's almost a hundred years ago as well. Yeah, that's true. It's crazy to think about that. You wonder if there is going to be something like perhaps VR that kind of takes it in a new direction. Uh, maybe I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, VR is, is a hard one because. They, to me, they kind of have to figure out how to get rid of the goggles, you know, for it to be... Until it's a pair of sunglasses, it's not accessible or contactless. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it just, it's so... It's, it's immersive, but it's, it's not immersive in a, in a way that necessarily... Um, and people are doing amazing things with the storytelling and, and, you know, and all that. You know, right now, it's just like 3D as opposed to something completely new but then again i mean if you look at like the first cell phones we had back in the 90s compared to what we're using now like those massive you know the brick ones yeah <laughs> they'll fade away eventually and we'll get down to something more streamlined and efficient right 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 yeah you're true so you know i'm, I'm sure the investments in it and it, it will all become something but you know for now I, i'm i'm more interested in making you know movies and tv as they are they are consumed and 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 watched in a sort of more traditional sense have you ever had a shot which you were uncertain about at the time but then when you saw it on the big screen you loved it i don't know i mean i, I think I, i'll answer that question very generally and just say that like i think that when you're making a movie and you're putting together any piece of that movie you're uncertain about it you know perhaps with years and years of experience you will feel confident that this is the right choice you just never actually really know, you know, um, you can feel confident about it. You can think that it will cut, but ultimately when the director gets in the room with the editor and they start to massage it and find it, you just don't know if it'll work. And, and that often will surprise me. You know, I, I, there's been coverage of scenes that I've done. That's, you know, really movement heavy. And you sort of just know, know well, is this going to make sense? Is this going to work? And then you see it, and you're like, oh, it kind of works, you know? So I, I would say that generally about most things. You just have to trust in the process. Yeah, you have to trust in the process and your ability and, and the vision of the director that they are pushing it in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that makes sense. Is that a given now? Are you, are you able to do that every time? Or are there ever times when that trust isn't? fully there sure but then that's a that's not a great relationship to have with your director (laughs) we won't speak about those projects yeah let's not (laughs) even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.